0: transform and uh, as I shared last week some stories are good stories they are delightful they are memorable but the ones that I value most are those stories which have the power to transform and there are many such stories as that uh, found in the pages of the Bible and last week uh, together we journeyed through the story of that man named Mephibosheth The crippled son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, who is invited to sit at the table of none other than King David. And as we said last week, it was a story of amazing grace. And uh, if you weren't around and you want to catch up with that, then you can do um, on our channel. This week's uh, story that transformed is the, the story that transforms is the story of Job. Now, Job is a little longer than Mephibosheth. Last week, we looked at just 13 verses. This week, we're going to be looking at 42 chapters. (laughs) So, I hope you brought your sandwiches with you. Uh, Job, and I might be speaking for some of you as well this morning, Job, over the years, was a story that has troubled me. In fact, there was a time that I couldn't understand why this horrible, awful, Confusing story was actually included in the pages of Scripture. I'll explain why I thought that in a moment. But first of all, let us read together from Job chapter 1 so that we can get a context. If you've not brought your Bibles with you, then the words will be on screen for you. Job chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job, This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. And he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Okay, at this point, the scene transfers from earth to the heavenlies, in verse 6. One day, the angel, angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them and put the servants to the sword. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, I think it would be safe to say it wasn't the best of days for Job. And if you continue this story into the second chapter, we then read that Job's formerly good health was taken from him. His wife instructed Job to curse God and die. But he told her that she was talking like a foolish woman and said to her, should we only accept good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Now, you might have come across the story of Job before. The story of Job is one of the oldest Most ancient stories in the Bible. It's an ancient narrative of a man who was upright and godly and spiritual. A man who loves God with all of his heart. But he suffered terrible calamity in his life. Calamity upon calamity. Raiders, fire, bandits, tornadoes. That destroys his ranch, his possessions, his family and ultimately his health. Only his wife survives. And from that comment, we'll see that she's not much used to him either. It's a story of riches to rags. And as we'll see in a moment, we'll discover that it's back to riches again. Now, in this story, the, the pain of loss is something that Job can put up with. But what bothers him most? What really, really, really bothers him? is that sense of betrayal. Because up until this point in his life, he has always believed that God was loving, fair and just. (coughs) But things are not adding up with him any longer. doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Because here is he living this upright, godly life, and yet he is suffering terribly. (coughs) Enter into this story... Four friends, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, and Elihu. Devout men who rather eruditely and dispassionately discuss Job's suffering. And they all agree that God is trying to tell Job something. And that uh, no one suffers without any cause. Essentially what they were saying is that God is just. And God will treat people fairly. Those who obey and are faithful are rewarded by God. Those who um, sin get punished. So their message to Job was, confess your sin and God will surely be merciful to you again. You know, their theology was far too simplistic. Now these discussions... Go on chapter after chapter, after long chapter, after chapter, after chapter. And first of all, one of the friends, Bildad, speaks and Job responds. Then Zophar speaks and then Job responds. And then Eliphaz speaks and Job responds. And then Elihu speaks last. And we go round in circles on three cycles of why they believe that Job is suffering. 35 chapters trying to get their head around the justice of God in the light of human suffering. Basically, how can God be just and good when such bad things happen to good people? Now, this book of Job is possibly about 4,000 years old. And yet, I would say it speaks with incredible relevance To us today, I've led many, many Alpha courses over the years. And nearly on every first session of Alpha, I get this question. If God is good and God is all-powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world? It's number one question. And number two question is, please explain the Trinity. How long have you got? (laughs) But then... After these men came and spoke their so-called earthly wisdom. After all this talk, 35 chapters of it, God speaks. And then what we encounter is actually the longest speech attributed to God in the entire Bible. And when God speaks, Satan is silent and Job is silent. And Job's friends are also silent. And Job and his four friends are well and truly put in their place. And the story ends in chapter 42 with Job having his material possessions, his ranch, his health and even a new family restored to him. He has seven more sons, three more daughters and we are told in that chapter that the Lord blessed the second half of his life far more than his life was blessed at the beginning. There we have it. The story of Job. And for many years, as I said earlier on, that story troubled me. It troubled me big time. And it might trouble you as well this morning. Let me tell you why I was troubled. Firstly, I was troubled over Satan coming before God and God initiating this conversation and saying to Satan, in so many words, Satan, have you noticed my servant Job... He's upright, he's good, he's a man of integrity, he's blameless. And it almost seems as if God is hanging out, uh, hanging out Job to dry there. God almost appears to be enticing Satan. And Satan responds by suggesting that Job is self-serving. And the only reason that he follows God at all is because God has put, placed this wall of protection around him and his family. But if that was taken away, then Satan says that Job would curse God. He would be exposed for the sinner that he is. So, God gives Satan the thumbs up to do whatever he needs to do in this, forgive me for saying this, in this heavenly laboratory experiment. That really, really troubled me. Let me tell you why else I was troubled. Because I came away reading that story. Asking, does God, the God who has revealed himself to us through Jesus, actually work that way? And then I asked another question Does God use his children as pawns in some kind of heavenly game? Does God invite Satan to kill and destroy? Does God allow people to lose their lives as a byproduct of testing the integrity of someone else? which we see in this chapter, in this book. I was also troubled by the end of the story, 42 chapters later. Because what we have here is a clear implication that just because God has given Job a new family of seven sons and and three daughters, everything is okay. What what are you on about, Job? It's, It's fine. You've got a new family. Nothing to whinge about. That's the implication. Reading that chapter, I'm thinking, I don't like that very much. You know, the first family, it appears, lost their lives, not because they had done anything wrong, but because their father was a righteous man who unknowingly took part in this heavenly experiment. That troubled me. But but, but are you getting the message? I'm troubled. You're getting that. I've been troubled by this story for many, many years. What's going on here? And then one day, this story changed for me from being troublesome to being transformative. My big breakthrough came when I understood this story was not a historical account of a man called Job. It was just a story. In fact, the clue is given in the book itself. And the clue is given in the genre that we are reading. Because in the Hebrew, the first two chapters and the last 11 verses are in ancient Hebrew prose. The other 39 and a half chapters are in poetry, ancient Hebrew poetry. And maybe we should pick up something from that. And I think it's ever so important, actually, that when we read our Bibles that we stop for a moment and ask, what is it that we are reading? What is the genre of what we are reading? (coughs) Because in our Bibles, we have many, many different genres. We have laws, we have history, we have letters, we have prophecy, we have wisdom writings, we have poetry. And I think it's ever so good, you know, just to stop for a moment and say, before I read anymore, what am I reading? Because I am pretty sure that you will not read your mortgage document quite in the way that you will read a letter from a friend. Quite in the way that you would read poetry. Or even a fictional tale. And if this story is meant to be history, then I would suggest to you that, quite honestly, it puts God in a very bad light indeed. And I'm not sure whether I would want to follow a God like that. But if we understand it as an ancient story which has been specially devised and written to try to answer this age-old question of why do innocent people suffer, then actually, it makes a lot of sense. And I thank God for it. And I thank God that it is found in this book. So, what have we got after 35 chapters of debate God speaks in a whirlwind and surprisingly there are no words of comfort for Job no answers to Job's questions of why he needed to suffer no explanations of suffering in the world rather God has some questions of his own and God says to Job chapter 38 verse 2 who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words. Press yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. And then God continues for another four and a half chapters. I say it was the longest uh, speech attributed to God in the Bible. For another four and a half chapters, he's giving it to Job left, right and centre. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. If you know so much, who determines its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? Do you realise the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course, you know all this. (laughs) For you were born before it was all created. And you are so very experienced. Job asked all of his questions regarding suffering. And now it's God's turn. God is doing the questioning. And then read through those chapters. Read through those chapters when you get home. <clears throat> God asks Job questions about the sunrise, about the rain, about the snow, about thunderstorms, lions, mountain goats, ostriches, horses, birds of prey, crocodile, wild oxen. And after each question, God either states or implies, Job, Job are you actually powerful enough to duplicate these feats are you wise enough to rule the world because it sounds as if that's what you're telling me with your many questions and god as somebody just whispered then sarcasm god even employed sarcasm look at verse 21 but of course you know all this for you were born before it was all created so you are very experienced now, I've always believed that sarcasm is a godly response. And then I have proof of it. Okay? So you can go off and be sarcastic as, you know, you're just following God's example. Okay? <laughs> God's words hit Job with devastating power. Prompting him to repentance and prompting him to surrender. And Job just puts up the white flag. He can't take any more. Look at chapter 42, verse verse 2. Job says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. In other words, Lord, you win. Who am I anyway? And what do I know? You see, God didn't answer any of Job's questions about suffering and unfairness, but God questions. His questions were designed to bring Job to that place for him to see how small he is compared to how great and how wise God is. And all that God was doing with Job was trying to bring him to a place of an admission of trust. Well, earlier I said that the story of Job is a story that transforms. But you might ask me, well, Steve, in in which way does this story transform? Well, each and every week in God's world, we are confronted by suffering. I am sure if I asked you all this morning, have you been confronted by suffering this week, either in your life, your family life, in your friend's life, people that you know, those that you've seen on television, I am pretty sure that there's not one of you who has not been confronted by suffering this week. By people's inhumanity, greed, selfish actions, sometimes suffering caused by accident, sometimes suffering caused by natural disaster. And in our hearts, we cry out, Why so much suffering, God? Why? And sometimes we cry out, Why me? And we have our questions for God. And we sometimes place God in the dock. But yet, if anything, if Job teaches us anything, it teaches us that so often there are no answers given or reasons given. But in our time of suffering and confusion, God's desire is for us to turn to him with trust and to acknowledge that we are not God, but he is. The God who himself has suffered. Dr. John Stott, for many years, a leader in the Anglican Church in the UK. This is what he said. It's it's a good quote, this. Please just sit and listen to this. John Stott says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectively before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on a cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, Brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of His. In other words, He knows. He understands. He stands with us in solidarity. He is the high priest who can sympathise with us, we read in Hebrews. In other words, God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. It's an incarnation. God is not some distant, detached, disinterested deity But he entered our world into its pain. He sits beside us. And sometimes in the lowest places of our lives. From the depths depths of a Nazi death camp. Corrie ten Boom once wrote. No matter how deep our darkness. He is deeper still. The God who created all things. Whose ways and thoughts are so far higher than our ways and thoughts. Is the God who comes alongside us at those times are we broken well we need to remember that he was broken for us are we despised we need to remember that he was despised and rejected of men are we sorrowful and grief stricken we need to remember that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief are we betrayed by others well he too was betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver and this morning whether you are in this building or whether you are watching and joining us online you might be struggling with illness with family problems with divorce with depressive illness with unemployment or a thousand and one other hardships and even this week you might have asked that question why me why suffering why am I going through all of this. And if anything, the story of Job teaches us that the answer to our suffering is the answerer. It's not a bunch of words. It's the word. It's not a tightly woven philosophical argument. But it's a person. And that person is Jesus. Can we just pray, please? Let's just silence our hearts for a moment or two. And let's just take those words in. That the answer to our suffering is the answerer. Not a bunch of words. It's the word. Not a tightly woven philosophical argument. It's a person. And that person is Jesus. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you are close to the broken hearted. And save those who are crushed in spirit. Dear Lord, we thank you that today that we can come before our Emmanuel. God with us. Enable us, Lord, today to see, first of all, how small we are. But also how great and awesome you are. How majestic you are in power. And how breathtaking you are in wisdom. Help us, Lord, we pray, to trust you. And we pray, Lord, that we might know your presence in times of trial and that you should be our light in times of darkness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.